and turn for the last time, Lord willing, to Mark 14. Not the last time in your life, but just in this sermon series. Lord willing, it won't be the last time you turn to Mark 14. Uh, Mark 14, 53 to 72 is our text for the morning. It's the final message in this section of Mark that we've called devotion and defection. We're seeing the devoted, faithful one, Jesus Christ, and so many people defecting from Him, whether it's the religious leaders who really, many of them never actually responded to His call of salvation, or whether it's the disciples who have fled from Him. Mark 14, 53 to 72, while you're finishing up turning there, just another announcement. This, this, this doesn't take sermon time, okay? So pause the clock, all right? I get these minutes left uh, back. Um, uh, we, we've been highlighting to you for a number of months now that uh, Phoenix Seminary asked us uh, toward the end of last year to host a, an internship program, and we willingly said, yes, we'd love to do that, help train people for future pastoral ministry or some form of ministry. But we also asked them if, it'd be, if we'd be allowed to have people from our church audit some of these courses or all of these courses that we teach, and they happily said yes. So I'm announcing that to you all over again. I'd love to see a number of you there with us. We start a week from this Thursday. That is uh, August 19th, and the semester goes through December 2nd. And just to kind of give you some more specifics, uh, we're going to be doing two classes this semester. They're, they're both on Thursday morning, so this is kind of like a once-a-week commitment. It's $100 to audit either of these classes. If you want to do both of them, it'd be $200. Um, but starting on the 19th, from 8.30 to 10.30, two hours, uh, I'll be teaching a class on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Uh, you can feel free to pay that $100 just for Phoenix Seminary and then come in and sit in, read the books, uh, listen to lectures, and just learn more about the doctrine of the church. Or if you'd like to do the counseling class, that's from 1045 to 1130, just 45 minutes. Again, once a week, uh, starting on Thursday, August 19th, and ending the first Thursday in December. So it's a one-semester deal. Um, wanted you to have the specifics about that. I know many of you are asking questions. Well, when is it? How long is it? How long are the classes? There you go. There's the info. I'd love to have a number of you there to join us. But you've got a limited time left, all right? So just wanted to give you the heads up. All right, start the clock. Mark 14, 53 to 72. Let me read that portion. This is following the arrest of Jesus. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments 
and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Entitled this, Two Trials, Two Outcomes. Two Trials, Two Outcomes. Those of you who were alive and remember uh, the O.J. Simpson verdict or trial know that at the beginning of that trial, a, a big decision was made. Judge Lance Ito decided in a Los Angeles courtroom that a camera would be allowed inside the courtroom. That decision captivated America for about a year as people day in and day out watched the trial of O.J. Simpson. How many of you watched that trial back then? Yeah. Okay, yeah, there you go. All right. Me too. I remember being uh, I think I had just graduated high school, going down to Southern California to see a friend, and uh, his parents watched it all day long. And it's like, there's a beach by us. Let's go. Let's, let's get out and go do something. But you know, the O.J. Simpson trial really captivated America during that time. And really, it, it was fascinating. Uh, even since then, there have been documentaries about this, and you've probably watched some of them, and everyone knows about that trial if you were alive then. It was fascinating that we got a glimpse into the courtroom. How much more thankful are we that we've got a glimpse into the trial of Jesus? It's oftentimes a painful one to read. I mean, especially when you get down to uh, verses like verse 65, and some began to spit on him. This is our Lord, what they were spitting on. Covering his face and hitting him, saying to him, prophesy, tell us who, who hit you. It's not... It's not that we like this because it's comforting to us, but the fact that we get a window into the trial shows us the depth of our Savior's love. We have a seat in the courtroom, as it were. But in this passage, Mark is actually giving us a depiction of two trials. Jesus is being tried, and Peter is being tried. Both trials are happening in the same complex, one in the upper room where Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin would be trying Jesus, and one in the lower courtyard of the high priest where Peter was, in effect, being tried by a servant girl and then some others. Uh, I've told you before that the gospel writers give details about similar things but from a different perspective. They're writing for different purposes. The purpose of Mark in showing you this Jewish pretrial, if you will, the purpose of Mark is to show you the faithfulness of Jesus and the unfaithfulness of Peter. Surprise, surprise, we come again to one of Mark's sandwiches. Uh, 
right? We know about the sandwiches. Mark starts by talking about Jesus and Peter, all right? Brings up Peter. Then he goes away from Peter, kind of pans the camera up to the, the, the upstairs trial of Jesus. And then at the end of this passage, in verse 50, or 66, he'll bring us back down to the courtyard and focus on the trial of Peter. So Mark is trying to show us these two things, and he shows us that they're happening together. Now, they didn't happen, they didn't happen one right out, sorry, they didn't happen at the same time exactly, but Mark's showing us that they're pretty close together, and I want you to see them at the same time. That's what Mark's showing us. Mark brings us scenes of two different trials, the trial of Jesus, where He stands firm before the Sanhedrin, which results in His death, which then results in salvation for others, and He shows us the trial of Peter, who fails to identify with Jesus, fails to be a witness for Jesus when he's accused by a slave girl, and Peter, Mark shows us, decides to save himself. So, Jesus gives himself, which saves others. Peter saves himself and denies Jesus. Again, in the context, we've just had the arrest of Jesus. Now, he's ushered into the high priest's home for this trial, or the high priest's compound, if you will. And then next, starting next week in chapter 15, we'll look at the the Roman trial. All right? So, let's kind of get the introduction to these two trials. Our, our, Our outline will be two trials which determine faithfulness, two trials to determine faithfulness. And at the end of the message, I'm going to give you some lessons that I believe we can learn as a church from this passage of Scripture. But before we get into the two trials, let's just kind of get into the introduction, the first two verses. Verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. This would have been Caiaphas. We know from other accounts that Jesus first went to the previous high priest named Annas, Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law, so he goes to Annas first because Annas still had clout, still had influence, so he goes from Annas to Caiaphas, and that's where he is in Mark. They led Jesus to the high priest and to all the chief priests, and all the elders and the scribes came together. So, picture what has to happen for this to be true in verse 53. This is nighttime. This is after midnight, and you kind of get the picture of people being roused from sleep, the Sanhedrin being roused from sleep as they're in their places, in their homes, in, the, in Jerusalem, and they're being brought to the high priest's compound, his house. So, this is a late-night trial, and the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. All right, so it's, get the picture, Jesus versus the Sanhedrin, the most formidable group that you could face in Jerusalem would be the Sanhedrin. He's then going to go to the most formidable group in the whole world, the Roman Empire, and face trial just in the next chapter. So, Jesus' opponents are great right now in this part of Mark. Verse 54, now we kind of pause on Jesus and go to Peter. This is kind of the setup. And Peter had followed Him at a distance, all right? So, abandoned Jesus when, when the arrest came, but then He's kind of following at a distance doesn't want to be associated with Jesus, but still has this love for Jesus. So, this isn't the height of of bravery here, okay? He's following at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And right there, you think of Jesus on trial and Peter getting warm. So, there's kind of this idea that Peter's taking care of himself, staying back, trying to get warm. Jesus doesn't get to ask for a fire. He's under arrest. So, there's this, there's this contrast here. 
Then we get into the two trials. So, two trials to determine faithfulness. Let's look at Jesus' faithfulness under trial, starting in verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, 71 members, were seeking testimony against Jesus in order to put Him to death, but they found none. Now, you don't have to go to law school to know that this is backwards. Oh, we got to get rid of this guy. What can we say that he did wrong? That's not how you do it, all right? It's not how you do it. If you're a police officer, you try something like that, you're going to have a meeting with internal affairs. If you're a lawyer, you're going to be disbarred if you try to do something like that. So, we need to get rid of this guy. Anybody got any charges that'll stick? That's what's happening here. Chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they found none. There's a problem. Now, there's a lot of a lot of debate as to whether this was right or wrong. Not, not that part of it. That part was clearly wrong. But the whole nature of this trial, was that right or wrong? A lot of people highlight what the Jewish Mishnah, which is kind of a code. They take all the oral laws from Israel and they kind of put them together in 200 AD, about 170 years after this time. They put them together saying, this is what must be true if you're going to have a trial. Now, my belief is that this, this was a kind of a pre-trial, not a, not a formal trial. This was the Jews trying to get something that they could bring to Rome because the Jews couldn't, couldn't sentence someone to capital punishment. Only Rome could. So they're trying to get some charges to stick to Jesus that would make him guilty and deserving of death so they could bring him over to Rome. Now, some of these things, according to the Jewish Mishnah, again, written 170 years later, some of these things would have been known during this time of Israel. Maybe they were violating some of them, maybe not all of them, but clearly, when you read about what a Jewish trial should be, even 170 years later, you see how, how dirty this trial was. You see how wrong this trial was. Let me give you just some of these things. And these are based on oral tradition that many of these traditions could have been around during the time of Jesus. First of all, no trial could be held at night. No trial could be held at night. This is supposed to be in the day when people are around, not when everybody's asleep under the cover of darkness. Also, the verdict in a capital case could not be reached until the next day. So, you had to sit on it for a little bit. Even if the person seemed guilty and you had the trial, you couldn't decide the verdict until the next day. You had to give it some time. Well, you'll see even in this passage, the high priest declares, you see, there's nothing more we need. He deserves death. Don't you all agree? And the Sanhedrin agrees. Also, witnesses had to speak only the truth and they had to speak firsthand testimony and they had to agree. Well, Mark lays it out for us that that wasn't happening. They were all saying different things, and even when they talked about the destruction of the temple, they couldn't agree on exactly what was said about that. Also, those accused of blasphemy, which Jesus is accused of here, those accused of blasphemy could be convicted only if they reviled the divine name of God. Jesus didn't do that. Finally, trials could not be held in the palace of the high priest. Trials couldn't be held in the palace or the home of the high priest. Where is this being held? Home of the high priest. There's actually one more here. They also, or it's kind of related to one. I told you that a verdict couldn't be given until the next day. Well, they didn't allow the verdict to be rendered on a feast day or the Sabbath day. They're not allowed to do that. 
but they do it here. They actually render this verdict on Passover. This is Friday. So, clearly this is a trial that is dirty, corrupt. Jesus died wrongfully accused. You know that, but He willingly died. Verse 56 Here's what started to happen. Many bore, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. So we don't know all that these many people were saying, but they couldn't all agree. There weren't two witnesses that said the same thing. Verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, here's one example of what they were saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus said something like that, He did talk about the destruction of the temple, but he was talking, we know from the Gospel of John, he was talking about the temple of his body. His body was going to be destroyed and three days later would rise again. They're saying he said he's going to tear down this temple, this complex, this structure, and raise it up three days later. Now, to say that about the temple, in many instances, could make you guilty of blasphemy. See, the temple was that important in Jewish life. The temple was the place where all their hopes of Jewish life were kind of centered. It was their essence. That's who they are. It represents who they are as a people. It represents their hope. They meet with God. The true and living God meets with them. So to, to, to discredit or to, to, to speak against the temple was to many people considered blasphemy itself. So that's what they're trying to get Jesus with. Now, we don't have something like the temple in our day and age. We've got some things in America that are important to us, but it's like someone speaking out against the flag, the White House, the Capitol, the Lincoln Memorial, the Office of Presidency, freedom of speech, democracy. It's like someone speaking against all of that at once. And that's what they're trying to get Jesus with. Verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They, could, they weren't even all saying the same thing about that claim about the temple. Now, these are the experts in the Old Testament law. They should have known Deuteronomy 19.15, which says that there must be more than one witness who agrees. Mark's showing us witnesses didn't agree, but they kept going forward. It's amazing how spiritual leaders who want their way will twist the Scriptures to get their way. That's what this group does. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. It's almost like witnesses are coming. It's not almost like this is what happened. Witnesses are coming, saying things they're not agreeing, and it's almost like the Sanhedrin's going, oh, just someone say something that sticks. Finally, the high priest is going to do something about it. The leader of the 71, the leader of the group, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? So, so answer what these people are saying. But he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus is not going to answer false testimonies. He's wrongly accused. He's got nothing to say about that. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't. And in this way, he fulfills an Old Testament prophecy given in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. I mean, when we're falsely accused, we're going to set the record straight, right? No, 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 no. That's not exactly what I said. They're twisting my words. None of that from Jesus. 
Why? Because he's the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 talked about. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He allowed himself to be falsely accused. But he will speak up when the high priest brings up something else. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Another way of saying the Son of God. Are you the anointed one, the one that's going to come and save Israel, the King of Israel, the one we've been waiting for, the very Son of God? Is that you? Now, I'm not asking you a trick question here, okay? Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Yes, He is. So the high priest asks, is this who you are? Now remember, all through Mark, if you've been with us from the beginning of Mark, I don't know, we're about two years in now, you remember the Messianic secret, right? You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. And Jesus would say, shh, don't tell anyone. It's not time yet for that to be publicly known. Don't tell anyone. Here, the high priest, an enemy of Jesus, confesses. He's not agreeing to this, but he, he, the words come out of his mouth. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And what does Jesus say? I am. No more secret. We're done with the messianic secret. Now that he's arrested, it's time to clearly and publicly identify with this. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He ramps it up. Yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Son of God. You're also going to see me, the Son of Man, coming with power. Christ is showing that he's the victorious one. He might have been bound at this point. His hands might have been tied. He's on trial. He's the defendant. No lawyer with him. He's alone in front of the 71. He's all alone, bound, and he declares that he's going to be the one victorious, and they're all going to know it. That's what he's doing. And it's very interesting. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, try to remember a couple years ago, beginning of the Gospel of Mark started out like this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then later in chapter 1, what do we hear? We read about heaven speaking, the Father speaking, saying, you are my Son and you I am well pleased. So from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we've known this is the Son of God. And he goes to keep that secret at certain times. And a demon will say it, and he'll say, be quiet. But now Jesus himself is testifying to the fact that he is the Son of God. And what's more than that, as you go through Mark, there starts to be, there's less talk about the Son of God, and there starts to be more than this talk about the Son of Man, the victorious one, especially when he starts talking about his death. So the Jews thought the Son of Man was going to be the conquering victor, and he says the Son of Man's going to die. The Son of Man is going to give His life as a ransom for many. But then He'll say that the Son of Man is going to come in power. So He's showing that the Son of Man, the victorious Son of Man, is one who's going to suffer first before the victory. So here, just in these few sentences, Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God, I'm from heaven, and I'm the Son of Man. I'm the victor. Who is going to suffer before the victory? What's He doing now? He's suffering in this unjust trial. This is a huge point in the gospel of Mark. Jesus declares 
publicly now more than any other place in the Gospel of Mark who He is. No wonder, verse 53, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? Do you see what he's doing there? We don't need witnesses. Uh, 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 Deuteronomy says that you do. No, no, no. We don't need any more witnesses. What further witnesses do we need? And he leads the rest of the Sanhedrin into sin, and they agree we don't need any more witnesses. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? I mean, it could be, hey, we've got 71 witnesses here now. We just heard this. Either way, they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Was Jesus actually blaspheming? No. In fact, who's guilty of blasphemy? They are. Jesus is who He says He is, and they're the ones that are actually guilty, but He's going to be treated as if He's guilty. Sounds a lot like the gospel for you and me. We are actually the guilty ones, but He's going to be treated as if He's guilty. You've heard His blasphemy. What's your decision? They all condemned Him as deserving death. And some began to spit on Him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. They're saying prophesy. We know from the other gospel writers, they're covering his face and hitting him and saying, which one of, which one of us did that? Tell us. This is just a mockery of Jesus. I mean, if you saw this happening to some person on the side of the street who you never knew, your heart would break. This is the creator, the sovereign this is the one that we read about in Psalm 103 who doesn't, who doesn't treat us according to our sins, who removes our sins as far as east from the west. This is the one who's been going around preaching and telling people they can be reconciled to God the Father. This is the one who cares for women, cares for children. This is the one who cares for the oppressed. This is the one who comes to save. This is the one who's the friend of sinners, and this is the one that they're striking, that they're mocking, and that they're spitting upon. I remember as a kid watching a Monday night football game. Some of you might remember this. And there's a famous, it was Broncos and the 49ers. Um, famous incident that happened in between plays. One of the Bronco linebackers spit in the face of one of the, the San Francisco wide receivers, and it was caught on film. Well, it was the talk of the sports world for the next week. The degrading nature of spitting in someone's face. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Blessed, is having spit cover His face. Spit cover His face. Then it's covered, then it's struck. They're the ones blaspheming. But what should we see from this section? Faithful Jesus. You know why He went through that. Because of His love for you. This is why He went through this. And He didn't back out. Jesus is faithful under trial. Another kind of sad thing in our day and age is when we hear about wrongful prison sentences. You've heard about those, right? Someone is convicted of a crime that they actually didn't commit, and 21 years later, maybe after their kids are all grown up, it's found out that they were actually innocent and they're released. I mean, they don't get those 21 years back. They don't get those 21 birthdays back, those 21 anniversaries back. They don't, they don't get that. They lose their life, in a sense, the 21 years of their life, or whatever it may be. Maybe for some it's longer. It's sad when we hear about that. Our, our normally 
effective justice system isn't perfect. Well, again, see Jesus, the innocent one, suffering unjustly. And He didn't just suffer 21 years of His life. He absorbed, took in the wrath of God. God's hatred for child abuse, God's hatred of adultery, God's hatred of murder, God's hatred of all of that was aimed at His Son so that any child abusers, adulterers, any of those who've stolen, who've lied, who've cheated, can find salvation because Jesus died for them. That's what Jesus gave up. He gave up the glories of heaven to experience the wrath of God for sinners, for the sake of sinners. If you're not a follower of Christ here, there's no better message in all the world than what I just told you. Jesus died for sinners so that they would not have to suffer the consequences of their sin. Translated, Jesus died for you so that you don't need to suffer the consequences of your sin that you deserve to suffer. Jesus died. That's why He went through this. That's why to a Christian, this passage in Mark 14 is so amazing to us. This is our Lord staying there with spit running down His face for me, for you. And more was to come. And then he rose again, proving that his sacrifice was vindicated by the Father. The Father accepted that sacrifice for sinners. So we see in this first section, this first trial, Jesus' faithfulness all the more. Now let's look at the second trial, Peter's unfaithfulness under trial. Verses 66 to 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the the Nazarene Jesus. so interesting here, such a contrast. I told you who the opponents of Jesus were, right? The Sanhedrin, most powerful assembled group in Israel, in Jerusalem. Well, who's he going to be in front of next? The Roman Empire. Jesus' opponents are huge. Who are Peter's opponents? Peter, the one that said, I'll die with you. Peter, who probably thought in that moment, I'll stand up to the Sanhedrin, I'll stand up to Rome, enter a servant girl. That's Peter's opponent. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, comforting himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. It's dark, it's night, he's by the fire, his face would have been lit up. She recognizes him. We're told elsewhere that she was the doorkeeper, the gatekeeper. Verse 68, but he denied it. And and his denial is pretty general. I don't even know what you mean. I neither know nor understand what you mean. What's a Nazarene? What are you talking about? Who? I don't even know what you're talking about. That's the nature of his first denial. And he went out into the gateway. So he denies Jesus and moves. He's uncomfortable. He moves locations, went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And we're brought back to earlier in Mark where Jesus said, the rooster will crow twice before you deny me three times. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, so now she's telling other people around, began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, probably one of the disciples, one of his followers, but again he denied it. And after a little while, so time is elapsing. This didn't all happen like boom, boom, boom. Time's elapsing. He denies it. 
maybe kind of isn't talked about anymore. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean. A Galilean Jew was recognized compared to a Judean Jew. Okay, the, the, how do you know someone's from the south? You hear it, right? You hear it. Okay? They would hear it. They would understand. They, they knew the difference between a Galilean Jew and a Judean Jew. You're a Galilean. She says earlier, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. So they are hearing Peter speak. They know he's a Galilean. They're pressing him again a third time. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself to, to, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, this isn't Peter using profanity. This is Peter saying, if I'm lying, I deserve to die. Whew. Peter's lying. He's invoking a curse on himself. And he says, I do not know this man. Peter doesn't normally call Jesus this man. He normally calls him Lord. He normally calls him Rabbi. He said in the Gospel of Mark, you are the Christ. He's called him the anointed one. He's called him what the, the chief priest pressed Jesus. He used the same term. He's called him the Christ. The chief priest said, are you the Christ? Jesus said, I am. Peter knows that. And instead of saying, Everyone in this whole compound, this is the Christ. Listen to me. I'll tell you, I'll give you proof that this is the Christ. He says, I don't even know this man. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The, the form of the verb is he continued to weep. This wasn't just a little 30-second weeping. He, he continued to weep. He, he, he remembers what Jesus said. He remembers that Jesus predicted this denial, and he said that he would never deny Jesus, and he does it three times pretty quickly, and the last time in a rather audacious way. I deserve to die if I'm lying. I don't know this man. Could he have distanced himself any further from Jesus? I don't think he could. Peter's unfaithfulness under trial. You see why I tell you that Mark is showing us really two trials. What's faithfulness look like? You see it in Jesus before the strong opponent. You see unfaithfulness in Peter in front of a weak opponent and some bystanders who are around Peter, like we can often be, is fearful of what others will think about him. He's fearful of people accusing him, people persecuting him. He's fearful of this, and this is why followers of Christ at different times in their lives have denied Jesus, have failed to represent Jesus. We're afraid of what it looks like to other people. With Jesus and Jesus' followers, Peter's bold. Without the presence of Jesus, and when he's thinking about his own comfort, he's timid and fearful and even denies Jesus. You read the account of Peter, and I'm sure if you're like me, what comes to your head is ways that you've denied Jesus, been unfaithful to Jesus, 
And it's not fun to think about, is it? Listen, I believe one of the main points of Mark 14 is to show us Jesus stands alone. Not just stands alone as one that's arrested, he stands alone as when under trial, he's faithful. Let me say it this way all of us are Peter. It's not that you're Peter, but other Christians have never been Peter. Every Christian has been Peter. Every Christian has denied the Lord. Hey, here Sunday morning, singing out to Jesus. Our golfing buddies tell an off-color joke, and we laugh with them because we don't want them to think wrongly of us if we say, guys, don't say stuff like that. We've all been Peter. We've been Peter this week around certain crowds, maybe in certain online forums, we will look like this to please the crowd, but it's really denial of Jesus. We've all been Peter. Jesus is the faithful one, and this is meant to get our attention. So, I believe there are some lessons for us at the end of this passage. I've got four. So, this is, this is a pastoral shepherding moment based on this passage. Here are some lessons for us. I think it's important to identify any groups that you are in that, that tempt you to deny Jesus. P- Peter's one way with one group, and now when threatened with unpopularity, maybe even arrest, he's a different way with another group. Are there any groups that tempt you to deny Jesus? Many of you have started school. We've got a number of students in here. You're going to start school. Are you one way with your Christian friends and then you're at school with other people and you laugh at the things that the world laughs at? You talk about things that would grieve your Savior, but you do it because you want to be seen in a certain light with that group. Is there anybody, again, I mentioned golfing buddies earlier, knitting buddies, okay, whatever your hobby, whatever your group, are you one way at church or in a different way with family? Are you a great father here in church? And at home, anything like God the Father, nothing like God the Father. You deny Jesus by your own actions even. Are there any groups where you regularly deny Jesus? Know that. Repent of that. Make provision. Seek accountability. Know that. Remember, this is written to a group that is, that is coming later than around 30 A.D., around 33 A.D. This is written to a group later on that's being persecuted by Rome, and they're seeing Peter, who they know as an apostle later on in the Roman Empire. They know he's an apostle. They're seeing him fail this way. This would get them to say, where, where do I deny Jesus? Am I standing faithfully for him? So it's important to see that, to identify any groups that you're in that tempt you to deny Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 13.6. This is so good. The writer of Hebrews is pressing people to to be faithful to Christ, have faith, trust in Him, trust in Him, even if it means suffering, even if it means being sawn in half, trust Him. Hebrews 13, 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The writer of Hebrews, another apostle, Paul, saying, hey, listen, you can say that the Lord will be your helper in times of persecution, in times when you might be mocked for your faith, because you can say, I won't fear. What can man do to me? And that's true, right? What, man can do nothing to hurt us. Sure, they can kill us, but we'll live again. Man can't do anything to us. 
Man can't stop the gospel. Man can't tell us to shut up. Man can't do anything to us. If they do, we rise again. Second lesson for us, repent if you deny Christ. Repent if you deny Christ. You see at the end there, Peter wept. Now, weeping, sorrow for sin, isn't the whole sum of repentance. A lot of people are sorry about sin, but fall short of repentance. A lot of people are sorry because of what the consequences have become for them, the difficulties of what that sin has done, but they're not repentant and sorrowful to the Lord for offending Him. So, I would say repent if you deny Christ. We know from the rest of Scripture that Peter repented. He went to the Lord, reaffirmed his love for the Lord, and the Lord received him. Repent if you deny Christ. Let me ask this question. Have you ever wept over your sin? And my goal here is not to get you to cry. My goal is to say, has your heart ever really been changed by Christ so that you see your sin as heinous? Or do you excuse it, deny it, belittle it? Weeping is an appropriate response to sin or being sorrowful or mourning. I'm not saying there's an amount of tears that have to come out, but a brokenness over sin is a hallmark of a Christian. Blessed, our Lord said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee telling the Lord how, telling God how great he is, the tax collector not even looking up to heaven, beating his chest, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the mourning Jesus is looking for. So when you sin, listen, please, when you sin, don't do this. Ah, I shouldn't have done that. I'll do better next time. You're missing something there. You're missing a conversation with the living God who loves you. You're missing what David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. So don't sin and then try harder. Sin, repent, remind yourself that you've been forgiven, and then ask the Lord to give you strength to do the opposite. That's repentance. So please don't short-circuit repentance. Don't go from guilt to working harder. Go from guilt to a conversation with your father through the blood of, your son, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that cleanses you from sin, and then go and put on righteousness. It has to be that middle part, that conversation with the Lord. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, as it is, I rejoice not that you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Paul really chastised the Corinthian church, and they were all sad about it. He wrote them a letter that made them all hang their heads, and they knew their sinfulness. And he says that he's glad that that happened, not just because they were sad. His goal wasn't just to make them sad. It was that they'd be sad to the point of repenting. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. That's what Peter had here, a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Don't just be sorrowful for sin. Be sorrowful to the point of going to the Father, remembering that you're forgiven, and putting on the righteousness of His Son. That's the pattern of Scripture. So, friend, if you've denied Christ, and we all have even this week, tell Him, 
Tell the Father, I, I've done this. I admit that I have denied you. I, I should have been praising you. I did this. Forgive me. And next time that, that opportunity comes around, I'm get, praying that you give me the strength to live faithfully for you. So repent if you deny Christ. Third, stand with Jesus. I mean, we read this and we can identify with Peter, but isn't there something in you that's like, Lord, give me another opportunity. <laughs> I want to stand for you. I want to stand for you. Christians grow. There will be other opportunities. Stand with Jesus. I like to say it this way, be a fool for Jesus. Let others consider you a fool for sharing this crazy gospel message that sounds too good to be true. Be a fool for Jesus. Have people tell you to shut up. That means you're saying something. You're declaring the excellencies of Christ who saved you. Stand with Jesus. After you've sinned and denied Christ, repent, trust that you've been forgiven, and take a stand for Christ. Those of you, again, going to school this, starting this, this year, you're starting school again, stand for Christ at your school. Stand for Christ in the environments you go into. Don't just take a stand here when it's easy to. Go out there among the opponents and take a stand for Christ. Love people enough to tell them the truth and then take a stand when they hate you for it. There's a famous, a lot of famous Christians who have sinned in great ways but then come back with faithfulness to Christ. Balthazar Hubmeyer, there's a name. You're having kids, there you go, Balthazar. Balthazar Hubmeyer has been called the Simon Peter of the Anabaptist movement. You know why, why he was called the Simon Peter? Because he denied Christ a couple of times. And then, after being forgiven of that, he came back and he gave his life for Christ. He was faithful. Hubmeyer was an Anabaptist in the 16th century, one of the movement's greatest theologians. He would see 6,000 believers baptized. So this great ministry, but he was persecuted for it. And on two different occasions, he gave in and recanted. He denied Christ under persecution. He wrote a work called A Short Apology. And in that work, he wrote, Oh God, pardon me my weakness. It's good for me that you've humbled me. Well, there was another time that he was threatened with persecution. He was threatened to be burned at the stake, and this time he did not recant. This time he went to the stake, and he said this. His wife was there with him as well. She'd be drowned three days later. She was there encouraging him not to give in and to stay firm, to be faithful to Christ. He was burned at the stake, and he said this, "'Oh, my gracious God, grant me grace in my great suffering.'" As the flames engulfed his beard and his hair, his last words were, Oh, my heavenly Father, oh, my gracious God, throwing himself on the grace of God. It's a great place to throw yourself. It's the only place. Oh, Jesus, he cried out. Witnesses said that in his death, he appeared to have more joy than pain. God granted this man repentance. He previously denied Christ, he was granted repentance, and he stood with Jesus. You might not have your beard burned while you're at the stake, maybe you will, but in some smaller way, some smaller ways, you've denied Jesus and you will have an opportunity this week to stand for him again. 
Trust in the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. Trust that He forgives and He sanctifies. So, friends, I can't say it any clearer. Let's take a stand for Jesus. Whether you're online, whether you're talking to a neighbor, whether you're in some other environment, take a stand for Christ. We know that church history teaches us that Peter was crucified on a cross upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to hang the same way his Savior did, but he went to the cross. He didn't run away. He didn't try to escape. He went. Peter was forgiven and renewed and strengthened. So, take comfort in that, all right? The Lord grows us. Number four, fourth lesson, and it's the words I just said, take comfort. Listen, maybe if you don't hear, if you didn't hear anything else I said all sermon long, hear this. Christ's faithfulness in Mark 14 is your faithfulness. We are, as Christians, in Christ. The life that He lived, we live. The credit that He gets for righteousness, we get for righteousness. We didn't earn it, but we get it. Take comfort in that. Listen, if you go out here of this building and you think, I need to think of ways that I've denied Christ, that's a good thing. But if you only go out thinking that way, you've missed it. Go out of here thinking, I need to reassess my faithfulness to Christ, and I'm so thankful that His faithfulness secures my salvation. He, what happened in that upstairs room is what brings you to heaven, the suffering that would culminate in the cross. His faithfulness to suffer brings you to heaven, not your looking like Peter. That's a gospel truth that all of us need. Christ's faithfulness is your faithfulness. Let, let me go even a step further. Your repentance does not save you. I told you, repent, mourn, but tears don't save. Christ saves. It's not the amount that you cry that finally fills up a bucket of tears and the Lord says, you're saved. That would be your work. Christ saves. Repentance just shows that you know and you trust Christ and you know you're guilty, but you go to Him for righteousness. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? If I was completely zealous my whole life for Christ, that wouldn't give me salvation. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? If I cried over my sin forever, that would not save me. It would not save you. All of these things, my zeal, my tears, all for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. And that's what Christ did on that cross. He came for the unfaithful. It's amazing when the New Testament says Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. Christ didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for those that thought they didn't need a Savior. Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, Mark's been showing us a contrast in this section. One trial, faithful Jesus. Trial number two, unfaithful Peter. Faithful Jesus had these great opponents. Unfaithful Peter had these weak opponents. Jesus, obedient to the Father. Peter, denying his Savior and sinning. 
but there is one way these two aren't contrasted. You know what that way is? They're both in heaven right now. Jesus in heaven, Peter in heaven with his Savior. Peter's not in hell because of this low point. He's in heaven because of his Savior's faithfulness. We need to hear that. I'll end with this. I, throughout the Gospel of Mark, I've been writing to you, I, I've been writing, I've been reading parts of 1 Peter to you because Peter is Mark's source. Peter told Mark, put that in there. I wept like a baby, put it in there. Peter is Mark's source. Listen what Peter wrote later in his life. 1 Peter 3.18 he wrote, he wrote it to the church, but you know he feels it in his bones. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Peter knows Jesus Christ's righteousness is what brought him to God, and he knows that he is the unrighteous one, not deserving to be in the presence of God, but he knows he will be in the presence of God. If you trust in Christ, His grace is greater than your sin. Let's pray. Faithful Savior, we can't thank You enough. We will stand before You declared righteous and innocent even though we deny You daily will stand because of your grace, will stand because of your commitment, because of your faithfulness, will stand because of your love, your security. So as a congregation of Canyon Bible Church, we say thank you, and those words seem so far from what is appropriate. But we'd also ask you to enable us to be greater worshipers of you, to be greater witnesses for you, to take bold stands for you, to love well even though we're persecuted, to bear with punishment, bear with criticism. Allow us to take stands, make us stronger. But at the end of the day, we praise you because we rest in you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.